Teenagers, yeehaw! Well, we don't know uh, the outcome of all the other podcasts this week yet, so we're going to have to sit here and uh, just do our best uh, until we figure out whether uh, all the other football podcasts beat all the other Gossip Girl podcasts, and we'll know whether we advance to the playoffs. So that's right, that's right Matt. That's, there's some things you can can control, and there's some things you can't. You know, and and that the quality of this podcast is just one thing we cannot control. It is it is up to all the other podcasts whether whether this is a good one or a bad one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. And uh, oh, I, we could go on and on and on. But uh, welcome to these fucking teenagers. I'm Matt Rather. That's Ryan Sheely, and we have Jordan. Stokes with us. Hey, how's it going? Uh, well, it's going fine, Jordan. It's wonderful to have you here in our podcast. I hope you're. Uh, I hope we're giving you a better welcome than the, uh, you know, than those people gave to the uh, Dylan Panthers. Sure. That's a that's a deep cut. All right. Well, uh, so we're on uh, Friday Night Lights. We're we're alternating back and forth between Gossip Girl and Friday Night Lights. That seems to be a good. Uh, Good strategy for us, doesn't it? It's, it seems to be working well. Um, so we're yeah, and I think we, we may be uh, um, this. I guess it has not been uh, officially decided, but we may be getting a new logo for this podcast soon. Um, one of our listeners uh, submitted a, a a sketch up of a new logo to uh, request uh, to reflect both the uh, official name change, uh, the the, uh, the iTunes mandated name change, as well as our mandated uh, dropping replacement of Glee with um, with Friday Night Lights, um, and I, I think it's still subject to approval. But I, I think that could be that could be coming down the pike uh, as well. It could be uh, with this uh, uh, with this episode. Even you could be seeing a new uh, you could be seeing a new logo uh, for the TFT podcast. Well, let's uh, let's launch into it. We are going to um, uh, deal with season, Friday Night Lights season one episodes eleven and twelve. Um, we never we never get to it at the end, or we never highlight it enough at the end. So I'll say at the beginning that if you want to talk to us, the uh, the way to do it is email tftpodcast at overthinkingit.com, tweet at tftpodcast, uh, or um, find us on Facebook page. We I, I should change the title of the Facebook page. It's actually these fucking teenagers podcast uh, on Facebook. You can search for that or uh, leave a comment on the show notes. Um, and uh, yes, absolutely. And so let's uh, or oh uh, or text. Call or text 20 fat jog zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Now, Ryan, uh, I, you know what? What is the best thing? I know you're the expert in music, uh, in pop music. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Not not the not the person. Not the, getting, not the professional musicologist. Not the professional like, musicologist on the podcast. <laughs> but um, you listen to bands that haven't even been invented yet, Ryan. So. Uh, so, uh, what's the best thing for a critic? I'm already to to? bored of bands that haven't been invented yet. <laughs> That's the <laughs> attitude. There's the, there's the Ryan Chile I know. Uh, what's the best thing for a cripple to listen to, Ryan? Oh, I I would probably say Nirvana, actually. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Street seems to agree with you, and um, the. Uh, the um, thing that he's looking for is his Nirvana compact disc. Now, this is at the beginning of episode 11, right? This is funny, right? Because uh, 
takes place in 2005, we're led to believe, right? That we have no reason not to believe it takes place in 2005. And I was, I was off CDs by 2005. I don't know about you. CDs nuts. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, what, was, what was the question? <laughs> they bring that up on the show a little bit. When, uh, when he's looking for the CD, his mother says, well, can't you just listen to it on your computer? And he says, no, I can't listen to it on my computer. I want to find my CD right now. Yeah. What do you think that's about? What do you think that's about? I don't know. What do you think that's about? This is going to be the rest of the show right here. <laughs> <laughs> it's out of our hands, guys. Like, this is one of these things we can't just control. Um, well, I, I mean, I think that uh, in that, I mean, the combination, so what Matt was going towards is um, that, you know, with the show set in 2005 and Jason Street being a 17 or 18-year-old at that time, um, it means he was probably born in approximately 1988, meaning he was, you know, around three years old right. uh, when Nevermind was released. Um, and so, you know, by the time he was really in a, in a place to probably start listening to and being aware of pop music, which is maybe middle school or so, you know, it was already a seven to eight year old uh, album and, and Kurt Cobain had been, you know, dead for about five years. Um, it's already uh, oldies. And so I think that, I mean, so there's, I think, two questions. I think there's one question about, like, the insistence uh, on, uh, on, on CDs. Why does he have to find his Nirvana CD? Um, and then the second of why is the Nirvana the thing that he wants to listen to um, when, when he's crippled? Uh, and, 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 and what is the importance of that? And, and what kind of, you know, what does it mean? And, uh, and then also, then how does it kind of relate to the themes of the episode? Because the, the title of uh, episode 11 is Nevermind. Um, and, and I think that um, as with a lot of these, um, uh, a lot of these Friday Night Lights episodes, the, the title has multiple meanings that kind of, uh, you know, is, is reflected in, in various ways as, as one of the themes of the episode. Thank, you. Um, Thank so, you, Ryan, for elevating the level of the discourse and not, not descending with me into... You know, what do you think it means? What do you think it means? <laughs> passive aggression and, and, uh, and I know you are, but what am I? Um, this, I mean, first of all, is this a... Uh, is this a realistic thing for him to be into? You know, I, uh, you know what I mean? Like before, I think there's a question before your two questions, which is, which is that like he, he came of age musically what around the time of, I don't know, early Britney Spears, right? Like he, if, if you're born in, if you're born in uh, 87 or 88, You'd, you'd kind of start noticing music as an independent category around 99 or 2000, right? So wait, what age? So you're putting that at like 12. So that's like early, early, like middle school, basically, is yeah, where I mean, you're I kind got of... My first, I got my first uh, Depeche Mode record. I got my Depeche Mode CD. That was the first... Uh, first record i ever bought on my own um, i know and it, it was broken too like it didn't work there was, it's just you put it in and it played silence it was it was horrible horrifying well, it played a, it played a terrible screeching sound <laughs> it was the screeching sound yes yeah we, i think we've told that story uh on the, on this podcast before but it's a it's a good one yeah um, so there, that was my, i do uh, think you know 
I do think that it's re- realistic that he would be into Nevermind, though, because, you know, my students that I teach about music in, in the classes on music that I teach as an expert on music sometimes come in and tell me that Nirvana's Nevermind is the most meaningful CD in their lives. So Ryan, and they're even younger than he is. Ryan, as our expert on music, what do you think of what Jordan just said? <laughs> I think there may be some merit to it, you know? <laughs> Wait, really? So seriously, pretty, pretty good for an amateur, right? <laughs> yeah. So seriously, Jordan, and I, I don't know if everyone in the audience knows this. Jordan is a uh, musicologist, right? And yeah. um, so re- really, n- Nevermind is the most important record in their lives. I'm surprised by a couple of things. I'm surprised that it's Nevermind. And I'm surprised that, they, like, that it's like a record that's most important in their lives. Because aren't we all supposed to be on single tracks now? Like we, we you know, just do what you feel like. downloads or, you know, everything on the waffles or something. You feel like Nevermind is like too much of a greatest hits Nirvana record that you want you want like a deep cut. <laughs> You're surprised that like they're they're pulling a um, a grunge band out of the past and then selecting their most popular recording. Um, no, I mean it's not like every student who comes in says that Nirvana is the is the best band or that Nevermind is the best record, but they're definitely when I ask them to to name something that matters to them. Nevermind comes up. And when it does, it's not like the other people in the class are like, what's that? Or that's so played out. They're like, oh, yeah, nevermind, classic. Yeah. So it matters. As for, the, as for a record over, um, over any other kind of thing, I don't know. I mean, it's, for all that it's archaic, the, uh, the word has been kind of grandfathered in, right? It's, it's what you call a, um, I don't know, it's a linguistic skew form. Uh, this, uh, this kind of bit of cruft that's going to stick with us probably long after, you know, long after the CD has completely died. We'll still be referring to things as albums and records. Sure. Well, right, yeah. I mean, it's a record in the sense that it's a, the record of an event, right? Like, uh, no, I don't think that's, I don't think that's how it's meant. I think that people use the term record because it used to be that when bands put out a statement, it would be on a record. And then they kept calling them records, even though they're no longer issued on vinyl most of the time. Yeah. Uh, uh, sure, but what, uh, I think you're right. But wasn't the, the vinyl record named a record because it's a record? I, I guess. But I, but I don't think that that sense of the term is why it sticks around because you also have them you also have them called albums sure yeah um and and albums that that refers to like the the form of packaging like the way the record was like transported and and packaged correct or um that makes sense i don't even know right like the only word album is like a photo album is the only other place i see that word used Mm -hmm. so yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it means kind of scrapbook, right? It's um, I don't know. I should look up the. I should look up the the etymology. Well, okay, then then well, never never mind the uh, the the. My original question was stupid, which which serves me right for making a crack about Ryan being the expert on music in the first place. So I don't know what are what what about your two questions? Um, uh, what about your two questions? Like, what is what is uh. What does he like? Which were what? What does he like about Nevermind? And what does um, uh, and what does it kind of mean in the larger scheme of the show? Why would the writers pick this as his album? Right? Yeah. What, what does he like? And what are the what are the writers like about yeah. it? Were the were Ryan's two questions more or less? Yeah. 
So what do you think about that? I, you know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think that it's um, (laughs) one thing that happens a lot when you have people who are in their like 30s and 40s writing about life in high school is that they will project their own high school experience onto these new high school characters. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's, it's just sort of inevitable, right? Like there's, there's no way around that. Um, so, so you end up having more kids on high school shows who are into old music for whatever value old music has come to, to take, um, than is true of actual kids in high schools. You know, you probably, I I think, I, I, I would call this the 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 Juno paradox, or if not paradox, <laughs> the, the Juno whatever, um, the Juno quandary, uh, because it's it's one of these. It was the thing that really killed um, Juno for me. Um, is that like the references and things that Juno was into were so obviously the things that Diablo Cody is into now. It was not even the things that Diablo Cody was into when she was um, Juno's age, but it's just really like, this is what I think is cool. Um, Hamburger and, and so fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, no, and even like the talking about like Sonic Youth and talking about um, like all of the bands that are di- are discussed there, and the way and the way she speaks and the way she kind of engages with them is very much the voice of Diablo Cody now, um, and and wanting to kind of show that off. I mean, it, it's also, I guess, a bit of a Garden State uh, phenomenon as well as the like. What are you listening to? The Shins. Sure. Right. Right. <laughs> the, 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 uh, this band will be ruined as soon as I say this. Uh. <laughs> it, it's interesting. I mean, for some reason, we give Quentin Tarantino a pass on this, right? Like, we, we, don't, we don't sit around and be like, well, is it really realistic for these characters to be listening to surf rock, you know, given huh. the, the time period that the, that the film is set in? Um, well, that, that, I mean, in Pulp Fiction, there's, there's kind of a, a complicated relationship between the diegetic and the extra diegetic music. And I'm not sure the surf rock, is the surf rock in the story? I mean, in the diegesis of the movie, or is the surf rock soundtrack? That's an interesting question that I'd have to go back and look at. Or is it both? Because the trick that he does a lot is to, is to, you hear something on the soundtrack and then you hear it very mid-rangey through speakers. And so the soundtrack music becomes diegetic music. Sure, yeah. And I'll also say, I mean, the whole diegetic, non-diegetic question, you have to ask yourself, first of all, whether it's a film where that even really matters. Because like, sometimes it matters a lot, sometimes it matters not at all. With Quentin Tarantino, I'm always so conscious of his curating the soundtrack to have it be a cool collection of songs right. that if there is diegetic popular music playing, like when they, you know, in Pulp Fiction, when they go to the, the bar and they have that sort of, uh, sort of Bayou blues song or whatever, blues is not the word, Zydeco maybe, um, that they dance to uh, and then they win the twist contest, like that's clearly diegetic, but I think about it as almost non-diegetic because I know the reason it's there in the movie is because Quentin Tarantino thought it was an awesome song and thought that we might like to hear it. Um, it doesn't really express anything about the characters that they enjoy this kind of music, mm-hmm. you know? Well, it, uh, yeah, or if, or if it does express anything about the characters, it expresses the characters' kind of constructedness, you know, uh, just as, uh, sure, just sure. as much as the, the kind of the constructedness of the whole world. Yeah, they're like their character parentheses one, not their character parentheses two. Their character as a fictional character, not their character as a human being. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, w- I wonder if there's another interpretation 
um, of why Jason Street wants to listen to Nirvana, which is that, you know, and this kind of relates to, Jordan, your experience of, of, of having students who recognize this album um, as, you know, and it's hard for us to evaluate because we actually were of kind of, you know, the age, uh, like, when, when Nevermind was out, Nirvana was becoming popular, it was right when we were at the point of becoming aware of popular music. And I, I remember that, um, you know, I remember seeing Smells Like Teen Spirit on, um, on, on MTV when I was in fifth or sixth grade. Right. Um, and it really just captured, I mean, it was one of these, like, moments where it focused on, like, like it really, like, focused and, and brought into clarity, like, what I like valued in music at that time or it, like it just it, i don't know it's hard to articulate um and and it, you know and and i think that for me it, it captured a kind of pre-teen uh sense i mean it was it was the gateway into liking music a lot and it was i think that's the case for lots of people of 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 how how we came to engage with rock music um and i think at, at various times um I, I think that, you know, for people who are maybe even a little bit older, um, maybe like one one kind of cohort, uh, you know, one age set or two age sets older, um, that it even expressed a little less this sense of discovery, but this sense of like angst. And I think a very, a very depending on what age you were when you discovered Nirvana, it's it's different um it's it's different mixes of this kind of um, both like discovery of like this is important music with like this is music that is important to me and is like expressing this 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 deep feeling or something this angst um, and I think that for for Jason Street so you know if this is just one of these albums that you know teens and teens and preteens connect with um, Jason Street connected with this um, and then. You know, it being Nirvana and it being the CD is also. I feel like it's that's important because that is is for him symbolic of this time before this all happened, right? Before before this, and he now like feels that he now knows. You know, you know, because there are you know many of the themes of Nevermind are very you know being crippled in various ways. Most of them on the inside. Um, sure, and, and and I mean. Although I will say that even I believe in utero actually brings that out even better, um, both in the in the in the themes, and I'm thinking I'm like um, you know maybe I'm dumb or maybe I'm just happy, um, and and also I mean I think that's, that's the main one, um, but I guess I mean I guess Polly um, also is is about. Um, has, has also themes about power and powerlessness. Um, but, the, the, you know, the body of Nirvana has all this before, but, you know, in some ways that Jason Street now, you know, he had a Nirvana CD, but now he both wants to, like, feel like he did before he needed the Nirvana c- CD, but also now needs it, or, or something like that. And it's this dual kind of um, expression of, 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 of that. Yeah, I mean, which is something, you know, Jordan probably could say you could draw the parallel better than I could, but it's something that Jordan has said before about about Glee and about the way that the universal and the kind of very personal meanings of of music uh, is con- uh, are connected. And the um, what's interesting here is that a, a kind of nostalgia that we imagine is the writer's nostalgia dovetails very nicely with with. Um, Jason Street's sort of newfound capacity for nostalgia because something has seriously changed for him. You know what I mean? It's, and it's 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 uh, 
you know, I, for for children who don't who haven't been alive long enough to see a lot of changes, um, I suppose, except in them, themselves, like developmentally, uh, unless there's some kind of trauma uh, in a kid's life, like you know, I don't know, like a, a death or a divorce or you know, a crippling accident. Um, there isn't a, a ton of of before and after. You know, you know what I mean? And uh, I think that's that's true with the caveat that like what counts as a traumatic event for a kid um, may not count as a traumatic event from the outside. Like, you know, uh, or at least children will think that, um, you know, getting, getting dumped for the first time is a huge traumatic event and you're never the same afterwards to an outside observer. That might not be the case, but internally that can be very real. And probably I'm I'm being a little bit snobby by saying that children are like this. A bit that all of us are like this all the damn time. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. Of course, right. That is to say, within I mean, within the scope of our subjectivity, there is, I, you know, things have a different. Oh, uh, things have a different kind of set of importances than than they do. Right in the in the scope of our yeah. what collective collective experience. What's the Mel Brooks line that uh, that comedy is when uh, like tragedy is when I stub my toe. Comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's interesting because there's also something that we've been talking about for the last several weeks, um, the last several episodes of the show, um, is about these kinds of perceptions of like personal change, like change versus stability of, of, of the individual or of social groups. Um, and I think that, um, you know, on the one hand, there's a tendency for the, you know, in, individuals to change gradually, but perceive that they are the same person, right? And, and, and kind of perceive stability kind of cognitively, even as they develop and become a very different person, um, and yet kind of rationalize it all. Yet at the same time, there's this individual um, tendency, uh, individual and collective tendency to sort of draw various um, points, turning points. Uh, and, and that might be, you know, either the way that one actually reacts to an event or this kind of, you know, post hoc kind of narrativization of like, that was, that was a turning point. Um, and that was, that was before this happened. That was, that was, that was after this happened. And I, I think that these kind of happen in, in different ways. Um, and, and I, I, so I think Jason street is, a, is an extreme example of that. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to think about, like in terms of like reflecting on changes in tastes of, of music um, and how that kind of relates to, to your personality, you know, in, in, in high school or in, in school in general, like this is like a lot of this is, is very tied up very socially, right? On the one hand, there are like songs that are very important to you or bands, but then a lot of this is, Oh yeah, I used to like that stuff, but now, now we don't like that anymore. And it, it's about kind of what is cool and what, it, what is shared. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if it's the case that, you know, Jason Street and Tim Riggins used to uh, hang out and listen to Nirvana together. Um, or maybe that was Jason's private music. And then they went on and, and then publicly they would like listen to, I don't know, country music or something. Texas, Texas forever. The idea being that like he hasn't listened to the Nirvana CD for a long time when he goes yeah. to get it. Um, that's, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Um, he does say that he has the whole Nirvana catalog, right? He says, uh, like, it, it should be right here with the rest of Nirvana. But uh, it, it also seems like it's not like, you know, he doesn't say, I was just listening to it yesterday, right? Like, he's, he's digging it out. 
it also kind of um, is potentially very, very meaningful that he ends up having to go buy another copy of it. Uh, that like, it's not the same CD for him now as it was before. He needs, he needs to get a new CD because really it's a different CD. But that is interesting. Then why not just go to the waffles? Like, like at that point, like, like, it would have been like LimeWire, I think, at that point, right? Yeah, 2005. No, LimeWire was over in in 2005. Yeah, yeah, that that, would have been like SoulSeek, I believe. Um, Uh huh. Um, yeah, well, why, yeah, why not? No, he wants a, he wants a thing. I mean, he wants an artifact. The, the, the sort of whatness of it is important, right? Also, um, to get it off of any waffle analog means connecting with another human being. Whereas, uh, and this is, I mean, I think this is especially true of, um, maybe I'm projecting myself onto this a little bit, but for me, always Nirvana was music that I listened to on my own, uh, often with headphones. And it was sort of like, you know, it's just sort of you and the music in your own little cave. Um, I think there's something about grunge that lends itself to that, even though certainly it was a whole movement and, you know, you would make sure that you had the awesomest looking, uh, flannel shirt, and uh, ripped jeans and then grunge fashion, even for pop fashion was pretty stupid, I guess. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, it became, I mean, because it kind of started as a thing of like, you know, it was, you know, people in Seattle just putting on whatever they had and wearing it for several days. Um, And then because the music became popular, people wanted to emulate these people in general, right? Um, Sure, sure. (laughs) So there's these like (laughs) You have the hairstyle that results from just not getting your hair cut for a long time. And uh, and the clothes that results from just not having a lot of clothes, right? But then then people then cultivate that, and and yeah. uh, I mean um, even to the the fact that I mean even some of that still continues to cycle to to cycle back. I mean there are definitely you know I've been uh, uh, on a few occasions to '90s nights, and '90s dance nights um, are are a thing. Wow, now. that's uh, awesome. Which is which is awesome. Um, I've also. <laughs> Done. I actually did. Uh, I, I actually did karaoke um, with some 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 mutual friends of ours. Actually, well, with 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 Pete Fenzel, um, we we did private room karaoke up here in Boston. And it whatever happened. So I, Pete sang "Lightning Crashes" by Live, um, the the only pop song I believe that has placenta in its lyrics. Um, and, and, and then that that actually like spurred. Like we were kind of flagging. We, it was a small group. We had only done it for an hour. And then after he um, sang Lightning Crashes, we proceeded to do about three hours of 90s rock, <laughs> 90s alternative rock karaoke, um, including uh, our, one of my favorites to do at karaoke, uh, Lithium by Nirvana, which is like a, ter- is a terrible karaoke song because the chorus is, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say yeah. the, um, the, the oeuvre of Stone Temple Pilots transfers to karaoke with an ease that makes you doubt their authenticity as a rock band. <laughs> uh, yeah. Spoon Man! I would like to do some Soundgarden karaoke. <laughs> Spoon Man's great. I don't think they, at least where we had, they did not have Spoon Man. Alas. I was thinking, actually, that would be like a great thing to work up for karaoke, especially if you like brought in spoons from home. 
<laughs> truly, truly, that is the vanguard of karaoke. <laughs> you brought in your own spoons, and you didn't even play them. You just held them in your knuckles, like Freddy Krueger style, and like whipped them out at climactic moments in in your singing. You know. Sure. Sure. Right, it's 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 become so so trite to bring an umbrella when doing "Make It Rain," you know, like that that is that is several years ago at this point. <laughs> so we ought to we ought to at least bring up one other thing about the Nirvana, um, which is when his mother asks him why he's getting upset, he says, uh, "Because I'm crippled and I want to listen to Nirvana," um, which you know it, it's sort of like really what's going on there is the first part of the sentence that wanting to listen to Nirvana is, is neither necessary nor sufficient cause for getting upset. But, uh, but having been recently, you know, having recently lost to the use of your legs is, uh, certainly sufficient and possibly necessary cause. So like, really it could be, it could be anything, right? Like I'm crippled clear and heart, I want hearts, full eyes, recently crippled, can't lose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm crippled and I want to eat a cheeseburger. You know, um, I'm crippled and it's mildly sunny with a chance of, uh, of light showers, uh-huh. um, which is, uh, on the one hand, it's kind of essentializing um, to say that, like, his being crippled must now govern all of his emotional states. Huh. Yeah. But it, but it is something that, like, it happened to him pretty recently. And my guess is, although I'm speculating here and probably shouldn't go out on this limb, that most people who go through something like that spend a long time dealing with it all the time. And that's kind of what you see with his, like his buddy, uh, from, from the hospital who lets it govern his emotional state as little as possible. Um, and you know, later in this episode has, has the, the talk about the birds and the bees and the wheelchairs with him. Um, and sort of says like, you know, you'll give it time, you'll get there. There will come a day when, the opportunity of sex will matter a lot more than the problem of sex with this disability. Uh, but, but he's not there yet. Right. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I, I don't know. So what this projects onto you, what I'd, what I'd like to, to actually ask what you think about is to what degree is he actually mad at his girlfriend for fooling around on him? And to what degree is he upset because his girlfriend fooled around on him and he's crippled? Well, right. It's the, it's the, it's kind of that the one leads to the other, right? Like, cause why, you know, do, you don't get the sense, at least I don't get the sense that, um, that, uh, Lila and Riggins would have hooked up, you know, without, uh, uh, Jason getting paralyzed. Right. Well, sure. So, I mean, there, there is a causal relationship there, but which one of them is bothering him? You know, like, where, where does the, uh, the anger really lie? Right. Well, right, because imagine, imagine, well, I mean, there's, here's a thought experiment. is like, imagine, um, right, uh, that he's paralyzed, they hook up, then all of a sudden he gets his feeling back and he's walking again, but they still cheated on him. Um, I mean, I, I think in that counterfactual, He's, um, um, AKA what I think is going to be the season two Downton Abbey arc. Um, the, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, uh, that, that's that, 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 like what I think is happening in season two Downton Abbey, uh, is, is the counterfactual. Um, in that case, yeah, I, I do see that. What? Um, he'd be, he, that, I don't know. Is he less angry or more angry? Um, 
Because or like, would, is he better in that situation or in the other counterfactual where like he's still paralyzed but she never cheats on him? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think in the world of like you know, in the world of Friday Night Lights, it can only be this way. It's actually hard to imagine either of these counterfactuals. Um, is that, and I think it connects to something that I think is in. Uh, it's either in, in this episode or in the, the next episode, in episode 12, where Tammy Taylor says to him, there's, there's no weakness in forgiveness. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, this process of being angry, um, you know, about being crippled and about the whole, the whole bundle of all of it um, is a process, you know, he works through a process that ultimately results in more strength. I mean, you even see this in, in these, in this set of episodes, um, is that, um, rather than being, it's like, yes, he is, he is crippled, but he is, he is mobile. You know, the fact that he is, you know, he's now back in shape and is motoring all around Dylan, um, in, in his, in his wheelchair at, at great speed, um, to, to accomplish his, his goals. Um, and then again, it's, it's this kind of, you know, in Friday Night Lights Land, there is this kind of connection between emotional state and and physical action in in different ways. So even though he is like, you know, he's he's angry, um, he's also in some ways, right, you know, the thing that kind of changes his trajectory in these set of episodes is not going to get the Nirvana CD. Uh, I mean, there's there's this arc that's really about what he is capable of doing, right? So he is he goes and gets the Nirvana CD, or he goes to the record store, um, brings brings Lila home, but then can't seal that deal. But then is is you know throughout this um, set of episodes is really you know moving around a lot more, and we'll, we're going to see that happening, um, you know, more more and more, um, and 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 is kind of this you know. If there's no weakness in forgiveness, then understanding what kind of strength comes from that and what kind of, uh, of, of strength and kind of, um, you know, uh, acceptance of that situation um, is, is related uh, of, of, the, of both the Lila situation and the physical situation, kind of how they fit together and like him as a person and his relationship to, you know, others. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's kind of funny that like when he realizes that he isn't going to get anywhere with this sex act that they just stop cold. <laughs> <laughs> probably probably revealing something. I'm not sure I'm not sure quite what. <laughs> whether it's about uh whether it's, it's, about, about, it's about the writer. Once again, it's, it's about the writers. Like. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um well, from here we could move. Uh, we could move to to Saracen's dad, whose homecoming is the the other kind of big plot of this uh, episode. Or uh, we could move to uh, Riggins and Education. Or we could move to uh, the other musical plot, which is Crucifictorious. I was kind of hoping that we were just going to stay on Nevermind for the entire episode, so that we wouldn't get out of the first scene <laughs> of the first episode that we were yeah, trying to cover thing. tonight. Well, we, uh, uh, we can do that. What do you think? <laughs> um, I mean, it's out of our hands, guys. Like, <laughs> cruci- crucifictorious, right? Like uh, uh, Christian. But why? I don't even. This is Landry. Of- this is Landry Clark's Christian hardcore punk band. Okay, is that? Hardcore punk. I actually don't even know what to uh, to call the um, the genre because I am not a musical expert like you, Ryan. I felt like it was a little bit like 
two or three shades to the metal of hardcore punk. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like yeah. fast enough to be hardcore. Yeah, it was maybe a little more of a a well. Yeah, so it could be a little more. I guess grindcore is also fast. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. We only see a little bit because I mean, um, hardcore punk songs often do have the break have a breakdown as well, especially sure, like sure. hardcore punk of the kind of mid nineties and early two thousands um, has is is influenced more and more by um, by metal. Um, there's more and more uh, cross pollination. I mean, I think that at various points, it is. I guess there is what it like. It says that it. I think it definitely says that it is um, Christian hardcore punk. Like Landry says that at some point, um, or if not in this episode, it's referenced as that. But I mean, again, then there's what it really sounds like. Because in the same way, in the world of Gossip Girl, um, Rufus's. Uh, Lincoln Hawk is described at once as a math rock band, uh, which is, you know, instrument, highly intricate, uh, you know, instrumental rock with like multiple difficult time signatures and, and rhythms. And they basically sound like the gin blossoms. Uh, the one, the, <laughs> the ones, like if it's, if it's math rock, it is, it's like, it's like pre algebra math rock. Yeah, right. <laughs> I was just thinking, like all, all rock is math rock. It's just that not all math is actually hard math rock that you can count on your fingers <laughs> right, yeah it's, it's like it's like uh uh well what's the, i forget what the number version of speak and spell is speak and math or something like that it's like my my first mathematics um uh um yeah it's like it's one step above like uh, one step more math rocking than like the count if the count on on sesame street had a, <laughs> right, right. Had a band. <laughs> It's also true, you know, that most of even the most like arcane math rock hardly counts as math that a, a mathematician would call math. That like really, unless your your time signatures are like self similar on many interlocking locking measure uh, many interlocking levels, or <laughs> you know, um, you only have uh, like numbers of beats in the measure that are prime and factor out in accordance with like the Riemann zeta function or something like that. And you're calculating all of that on the fly. <laughs> like, could you really call it math rock? Well, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, is there any music that you know of like rock or otherwise that would cl- classify as, as sufficiently mathy? Uh- <laughs> well, this is an interesting, this is relevant to my interests, but probably not relevant to like anyone's interests who are listening to Awesome! Do it! <laughs> <laughs> So there's there's a lot of um, not necessarily music exactly, but a lot of music analysis um, in the last like couple of decades um, leans on graph theory, uh, where you you take sort of a collection of pitches, um, the, the transition from one chord to another is parsed as a transition from one set of objects to another set of objects. Um, and there are certain ways you can get from one chord to another and certain chords that will move to other chords, um, but not to certain other chords, etc. And the question is whether this is actually saying something interesting about the music or whether it's just sort of like people notice that there was kind of a resonance there and are just kind of messing around. Um, and I don't understand enough about it. Like, I, I tend to sort of look at this, like, aren't people just kind of messing around here? 
Does it, does it actually tell you anything about how this stuff sounds? But it's something that I don't understand enough about to really explain. So my guess is that probably it does work if you can understand the math well enough. But graph theory is really confusing. It's one of these things where it, like, you take some stuff about numbers and you can project it onto a visual image. So there's a famous problem, which is like, if you have these set of bridges in a city, uh, how many ways can you cross all seven bridges without ever crossing one bridge twice? So you can look at it like on a physical plane, but actually using the visual metaphor just makes it more confusing and you're better off breaking it back down to the numbers. And I don't, you know, I, I can't do the numbers well enough to, to do that. So I've lost you, right? What do you think? What, 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 kind of, what kind of questions, what kind of like research questions would one answer with graph theory in, in, in music? Um, it's not really a research question. It's that there are certain passages in... Um, I think this was first noticed in 19th century romantic music, uh, Schubert, Schumann, people like that. Certain passages where traditional music theory analysis doesn't adequately describe what's going on, where you have like a big series of chords that are related by base motion of a third, sort of like it goes from E to C to A to F to D or something like that. Uh, by traditional music theory standards, there's no reason why you would do that. This graph theory... Um, accounts for it very well. So it was just sort of like a positive way to describe what's going on here. Is there, they're moving around between these different arrays, which can be put together into uh, what's called a, a, a tone net. Um, and then it was also applied to atonal music, where similar kinds of voice leading procedures happen. Um, well, so it's, so it's the it's the uh, it's the Marvin Gaye research question. What's going on? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Right, <laughs> exactly. Um, which is, like, I think, it's, actually, it's a purely like legitimate research question, right? It's, yeah. it's it's a question of descriptive inference and and using this as a tool to make stronger descriptive inferences. Yeah. Which no, the, um, yeah. the question that gets turned around is like, did the composers when they were writing this were they thinking about that stuff? Um, and that is a question that, that I think gets asked less often than it should, perhaps. Um, but the answer is almost certainly no. <laughs> uh, so it would, it would be kind of, it would like put a kibosh on a lot of people who are very interested in what they're doing. And I don't want to be like the killjoy who says, well, you know, guys, aren't you just messing around? Yeah, but that doesn't, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that that necessary, that messing around is necessarily bad because it's, you know, in uh, practitioners, and I hate to get all Malcolm Gladwell here, but like expert, when you're an expert at something like, you know, composing music as Mr. Shu, as either Mr. Shu certainly was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I really want to, man, that, that video, like that, that video series, that online, online web series just really just totally writes itself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Schumann or Schubert do uh, what leading a glee club? Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> um, the uh... It's called Freud. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, they, they... Hair shoe! Hair shoe! <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think, Matt? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten what I think at this point. I am. Um, uh, either of them presumably just had certain tastes that were developed by whatever mysterious process an artist's powers are developed by. You know what I mean? And there's, and I, you know, I'm sure we've all kind of done creative work where you just get a sense that it's finished, that it's completed, or that a certain aspect of it is right, uh, and you couldn't necessarily art articulate why. 
Um, uh, I, I think that, that it is a useful role of, of scholarship to sort of try to account for these things that just, that just feel right, but that don't fit into our, you know, existing analytic paradigms, right? Well, right. The, the, difficult, the, difficult well, ahead, thing, the difficult thing about this particular branch is that um, you get to situations where, like, we know what it was that they did. And it's fairly easy to sort of say what they were doing. Um, you know, they're, they're having chord progressions where uh, the bass moves by a third over and over and over again. Now, you can account for that by creating this elaborate sort of set of sets and say that when, they, when the bass moves by a third, they're moving from node to node in these, uh, like these, these set of pitch sets. Um, but if you do that then like the the framework for developing chord progressions that that gives you like the number of different ways you could take it is vast and the number of ways that they actually navigate through that network is relatively constrained which is why it suggests to me that like this is not really a great model um because it's sort of like saying that um Oh, I don't know. Like to to do the most cartoonish example, it's like uh, saying that um, somebody who like you have someone made like one of those paperclip frogs that can uh, you press down the bottom and it like jumps. And you're like, well, if they made a blast furnace and then like did lost wax casting of the shape of this paperclip frog, and uh, and then we lost the blast furnace and we lost the wax, that would account for the shape. But if they bent the paperclip, that would also account for the shape. But, uh, but again, like what I say is I don't really understand the theory behind this stuff. So it's probably that I'm sort of, I despise it because I don't understand it. And if I actually got what was going on, then I would have a, a better understanding of why the blast furnace is necessary for the explanation. I mean, it would be fascinating to like generate chord progressions that like, that, like run the replications of like the alternate paths. Um, yeah. And right. then... And then I don't know how then you would like assess, like comparatively assess, um, you know, the existing um, shoe, shoe, the existing shoes versus these hypothetical shoes. And if like anyone could tell the difference um, in, in, in a way um, that that is that is relevant. Um, I mean, if, if there is something to that, if say experimentally, like, you know, and, and again, I don't even know what the right metric is. Um, I, I think this is an interesting question of. You know, part of why we're talking about these things and why people are wanting to study this is that it is both like it is because it's recognized as being good or even or great or important in some way. Um, and we want to I, I mean, is that is that part of why it's being explored and discussed? it's both good and great and whatever. And, and it's not well explained by existing music theory. Right. There was there was a pr- moment of innovation. And even now we're still trying to explain that musical innovation. Um and, sure. Yeah. And, like how it works. Right. Uh, right. And 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 but like in the process of how it happens is it, it maybe close to something that that's close to what Matt um, describes. It's it's a little bit of a combination of the you know to talk to talk about another um, would be Malcolm Gladwell. You know, a, a uh, in a. Um, um, Oh, um, in a Merlin Man kind of world, is a combination of expertise um, and impulse, right? So that, like, you know, there might just be like, I want to do it this way, 
um, and then following that impulse, but also recognizing, hey, that sounds that is good. That that is exactly what I wanted my impulse to be. Um, and and that um, you know, I, so there's there is a technical school of how that came to be, um, and then there's the the kind of question of of what that is. So I think it would be very interesting to understand, um, you know, whether that, you know, whether, whether all of like, whether this, um, is some kind of a, a, uh, a maximum, like from a theory of optimization of something, whether like the node that we ended up on, um, with the actual compositions is a, either kind of a global maximum or a, some kind of local maximum. They're like, what other kinds of pathways would have produced, you know, a similar uh, effect. And Um, actually I saw a really interesting paper that applied this kind of thinking to um, hair metal guitar solos, which actually tend to like, they can also be mapped onto this, uh, this kind of uh, array. But the the paper came to the conclusion that the reason why the guitar solos sound like they do is because it's easy to play those progressions on the guitar. Like, Mm. it it falls under the fingers, naturally. Um, And Mm. there are other plenty of other progressions on the net, like other paths that you can draw that uh, do not fall under the fingers naturally, and those never appear in Van Halen. Uh, Mm. You know, so, you know, they're kind of... um, you know, it becomes interesting to me again. And I say, like, wow, that's actually really cool. But the conclusion that they come to is that, like, the network, although, I mean, I suppose it's kind of fascinating in the way that, like, finding the golden section in things is fascinating. Like, look, this mathematical object shows up freaking everywhere in the world. Um, But it doesn't actually explain what's going on with the music. What explains what's going on with the music is the guitarist's fingers fall here. So is is that is that paper called "Ain't Talking About Love"? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it might have had the analysis. word might have had the word eruption in the title. Not not one hundred percent sure. <laughs> so, but I think yeah. So there is a this combination of like technical mastery um, and and kind of inspiration, like creative spark. Um, and I think Crucifictorious is is the the uh, certain certainly lacks um, the the former. Right there is there is plenty there is plenty of impulse um, uh, that, that Landry one, that Landry Clark wants to express, um, you know, being the non-football player in this football town, being smart, being apparently, I believe, straight edge. I believe he's rocking the X's on his hands um, uh, in in the show. Um, but the the actual technical pro- proficiency is is not there. Um, this is this is about as 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 math rock as as Lincoln Hawk. Um. <laughs> so you would say that uh, it, it's not just stylistic that like their their particular brand of screaming and flailing is, and you are more of an expert on this than I am. Not competent screaming and flailing. No, that that, that that's correct. Um, it is. It, there is definitely. There are definitely varieties um, uh, of. There, there. Are, yeah. That, that. I think that's. I think that's right. Like there are, are some that scream. I mean, it's it's like the evolution of of hardcore and well, punk and hardcore is is interesting because I think they're more. I mean, it's it's interesting to say like 
there's this interesting dialectic in the world of hardcore of like it, you know, the punk and hardcore start in part because there becomes an idea of, of the, there is this impulse, right? That's just like, I, we, I like, we want to play music. We're not good, but we are going to, we're going to play this music um, anyway. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that, that, that's, I, I've, I've read that about that, even in interviews with uh, Ian Mackay uh, of, of Minor Threat, um, who, you know, they just picked up their instruments, you know, learned a few chords and, and chugged them out. Um, but then as this kind of, you know, the other thing that the, especially as hardcore developed had was lots of, lots of aggression and, 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 you know, there became almost an arms race to, to, um, you know, get even more and more emotion out and, and, and more and more violently. And as it also escalated, you know, part of that was also, um, doing, uh, you know, being faster and louder. And at a certain point, um, it, it actually helps to be good at playing your instrument to do those things. You know, to, the, a better drummer is going to play faster than one who who is, is barely proficient. Um, the, the the you know the 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 various aspects of the speed of, of guitar riffs and the and the kind of intensity um, benefits from um, um, from from uh, from technical proficiency as well. So I think that there is um, so like there are. The, the elements that, that started to go closer to metal um, of, of hardcore um, are like, you know, then go, you, you start to see bands where there is a lot more technical proficiency. And, and so um, Crucifix Victorious is qu- quite bad on, on that. Um, metric. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think so they're, they're closer to a, a, if anything, closer to a, a minor threat um, model um, but don't have that kind of sense of urgency or, or real sense of, of place, right? That, that, you know, Minor Threat and the other, like, early hardcore bands worked because there were many people who, who wanted this. And, and, and it became a, a thing that, 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 you know, was there, they, they were, the consumer, they were getting high on their own supply, right? Um, in, 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 as, which is ironic given the, um, that they're, they're straight edge. Um, but the, you know, the, <laughs> the people going to the shows were in bands. You know, this is, this is famous, famously like, you know, Henry Rollins started out as a roadie for some of these DC bands and then, you know, later, um, was in, uh, was in uh, was in Black Flag. He may even start as a roadie for Black Flag before he became the second uh, singer. But you know the, the, that in all of these scenes, people go to shows. They're like, I want to do this. They start a band. Um, they they that band breaks up, um, and there's this just like you know churn of of bands and, and all of these kinds of really vital punk and hardcore scenes. Um, and you know with the the climactic scene that we see. Uh, of Crucifix Taurus is just playing to an empty room. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, right. you, know, you know, that it, it is just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's this, uh, and the people who are there, I mean, the, like the, the, you know, couple of people who are there are interesting because they're kind of staring as at a road accident. And when, you know, when Riggins rolls up and he, uh, he claps, um, He's the only one clapping, and he doesn't even set off a reaction. You know what I mean? Even like a politeness reaction among the uh, among the yeah. things. But I do know that thing of showing up at someone's band, uh, timing it just so you're there at the last song, and you know, so that you don't have to be there and say say what you think. Um, and uh, haha, the joke's on him. They're going to play another set in ten minutes. <laughs> 
But yeah, it's, give them credit for playing their hearts out even to the completely hostile crowd. Right. It's kind of like this podcast. Give us credit for playing our hearts out uh, even to a crowd that we habitually alienate uh, and confound. Speaking of which. All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we That's did... the math, 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 <laughs> math Harvey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't, yeah. Oh, man. Feel the rhythm <laughs> with your hands. Um, the uh, <laughs> it's really insane. hard. I should be singing uh, Allison Chains, right? Okay. I don't. I don't know if you could even like. It would just be Allison Chains. <laughs> I like. I like Spoon Man. It's insane. <laughs> Spoon Man. <laughs> uh, so we didn't even get through. It felt. It felt good. <laughs> we didn't even get through uh, one episode, but hey, that's just how. Um, as you are, as you are. <laughs> This is great. Polly <laughs> wants a cracker. <laughs> think She's I should get off her first. What do you think? I think it's I think it's time for us to wrap. And I think that if you want to get in touch with us, it's uh, TFT Podcast at everythingit.com. Tweet us at TFT. Search for these fucking teenagers podcasts on Facebook. Call or text twenty fat jog zero one. That's two or three two eight five six four zero one. Or uh, preferably leave a comment on the show notes uh, for this. We will be back to talk about Riggins and education. To talk about uh, Tyra and her mother's bad taste in men. To talk about the social landscape of the county fair or the the women's auxiliary rodeo or whatever it was uh, to talk about gossip girl probably next time uh, to talk about ryan sheely's expertise in music but most of all to talk about these fucking, fucking teenagers <laughs> <laughs>